Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are discussing managed funds. We'll look at the pros, we'll look at the cons, but perhaps more importantly, we'll give you an action plan that can give you far more control and the chance of outperforming 80% of the market. As always, take plenty of notes, but most importantly, make sure you take plenty of action. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Rangel. Thanks for having me on the show, Mr. Baxter. Standing out in that green shirt, love it there. Absolutely green, great color. It's the color of my house at school, Eastbury Greens, and uh, it's stuck with me since. Well, there you go. Well, one thing that stands out to me is a talk around managed funds and more so around their performance over the last five years or so. I won't, won't go through that statistic just yet, and maybe we'll save that for a little bit later, albeit we're going to talk everything managed funds today, what they are, how they work, and are they really worth it? Yeah, look, managed funds is an interesting one, and I guess for the bulk of my career in markets, it's it's been a bemoth industry. It is enormous, but has it had its day in the sun? Is there really a future for it? And where are savvy consumers going now to maybe get better performance, lower fees, uh, and ultimately a little bit more control, I suspect, are things that we'll look at. And yeah, managed funds are an interesting space. I've been a fund manager. I've managed a futures fund. I've managed uh, an equity and equity derivatives fund. So I know that game very well from the inside out. Uh, and managed funds are very, very good for the fund manager. But I guess the question is, are they as good for the investor? Uh, and that's not always the case. So I'm sure we'll explore that as we dive in. I guess that was always, that was always probably the older attitude, right? If you've got a pool of cash that you want to invest in the stock market, go and see a stock price. Broker or, or a fund manager, right? Mm, that's right. I, I mean, in essence, what is a managed fund? And it's a pool of assets, a group of people that choose to want to invest in a, a, a particular vehicle that's run by a person or a company to do a particular task. So if you wanted exposure to the stock market, but you didn't want to open a broking account or, or have individual holdings, you could uh, go to your financial planner, find a fund manager that's uh, in the in the space of managing money uh, and cut them a check and, and leave them to it, which you know, it comes with some significant benefits. It's totally passive. It's totally hands-off. There's nothing required. There's no skill set. There's no distraction. There's no emotion. Um, but there are a series of cons, of course, that go with that. You don't get the pros or the cons. Well, let's dive into some examples for the benefit of our listeners, AB, because in actual fact, managed funds as archaic as they are, are actually quite diverse in what they can offer. Mm. So what kind of managed funds do investors have access to out there? Oh, look, I mean, there's a smorgasbord across just about anything you can think of, whether that be by country. So you might be invested in an Australian equity fund, for example, or an Australian uh, small cap fund. So that would be just the say, top 200 shares or thereabouts yeah, in Australia? The, it might be the ASX leaders, so the top 50 or the top 200 companies, or it could be the small cap. So it could be the ASX 300 or, or beyond uh, playing at the smaller end of the market. Um, then you can start to move into different countries. So it might be a US or it could be a European equities fund or an emerging markets fund, for example. So you know, typically you see them classified uh, geographically, which you know kind of makes sense because then you can choose where in the world you want to park your money. Also by asset class too. So you can have a bond fund, uh, a listed property fund, um, Obviously, equities, which are which are a major component of it, and then I guess the, the 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 one that's probably the most prevalent, that's probably the easiest one size fits all, is a balanced fund, which contains shares, bonds, and fixed interest property, some cash component, and just about everything in between. So that's like the the bucket that you can chuck your money in, and you've got a little bit of everything. The problem is with a little bit of everything, uh, is typically you end up with a duck billed platypus, which uh, may well be an interesting animal, but is it the best? <laughs> so just to pause there, Ab, if we think about 
a balance fund, for example. On that, kids found a duckbill platypus in the creek at the weekend. On really? Our, on our farm, yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. If you're investing investing in a balanced fund and you've got exposure to property and be mm. commercial, residential and all that yeah. kind of thing, I guess that probably provides quite a nice benefit to investors, right, because they can get exposure to those kinds of assets for minimal cost. Mm. Abnormally, they wouldn't be able to buy something that expensive, right? That's right. I mean, if you take bonds, typically you need larger licks of cash in order to invest in that. Whereas through a managed fund, that's either a bond or a balanced fund, you could have exposure to US twenty-year uh, treasuries, uh, some UK gilts, uh, some German bunds. Just to give you some examples of some of the things, as a retail investor, it would be unlikely uh, that you would invest directly in uh, 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 as an investor. So you know, you trot off down to your financial planner, and uh, and they sit down and, and and give you an array of the products that I'm going to say it, they have to sell. Uh, and, and whilst that may sound a little bit cynical, that is one of the issues when we move to the con side of funds. They're, they're, they're great at giving you a passive vehicle uh, for investing into different things. Um, one of the trade-offs, uh, and controversial as this may be, if you go and see a financial planner, uh, it, all financial planners have something that's called an approved product list. And, and if you're part of a dealer group, so let's say you're an AMP financial planner, you're under AMP's auspices, the only products on your approved product list, I can almost guarantee, will be AMP managed products. So if you've got a client that comes in and says, look, I want to invest in in the Australian stock market, the only product you'll put in front of them might be the AMP um, Australian Equities Fund or Australian Equity Growth Fund or whatever it may be, but it's managed by your company. So to an extent, there's a bit of a conflict of interest. Bias in, almost, right? Absolutely a bias because it may not be the best performing fund in the marketplace. Um, so whilst you're taking into account the fact that the client wants to invest in Australian equities, it may not be the best fund for doing that, but your hands are somewhat tied um, to only being able to recommend products that are on on that approved product list. And I guess that's kind of why we're in the financial advocacy and education space where that financial literacy is so, so important so that our clients become people that are buyers that are selective and know what they want and they're able to buy what they want rather than be sold something that may not be the best fit for them. Got you. Parking that to the side, talking to the benefits as such, because you mentioned that managed funds are quite easy to invest mm, in. Totally, yeah. Are there any other benefits to actually holding a managed fund? What about the administration side of things, your reporting, taxation, that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, you get your statement at the end of the tax year. Everything is largely calculated in there for you. So if there are, for example, dividends that have been received and reinvested, all of that kind of work is then handled and you've got a unit price. And that's the great thing about it. It's very, very easy to see where you're at because it's just one investment portfolio with all of this stuff in. It's valued typically on a daily basis, sometimes a weekly occasionally they're monthly, but usually daily. Uh, and you can see what the unit price of that investment is. So you can see each day exactly how it performs. So the, the performance can be very transparent and you're able to follow that on a daily basis for sure. So just to talk to that, you mentioned unit price. Mm. Now, a term that likely a lot of people have heard of more recently, or maybe they've watched billions on Netflix as, as on Stan as I have, would be the term hedge fund. Mm. What's the difference between a hedge fund and a managed fund? Look, I think managed funds, um, I guess, are a more traditional model, uh, and, and you might see a fee structure of around, say, and this is one of the cons, of course, you know, there's a fee structure and it's fairly meaty. Um, you know, it might be 2% of funds under management are taken by the funds manager uh, as their administrative fee for, for looking after the, the, the investment. Uh, and there are several ways of looking at that. You can look at that as being very good value for money, or you can look at it being somewhat questionable if there's no value add. Uh, and I think we'll talk a little about performance in a moment. Uh, it's quite a good segue for that. So if each year you're able to charge a couple of percent for managing that money, win, lose, or draw, 
you don't really have a vested interest uh, or any real upside in making sure the performance is 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 very very solid and most managed funds perform in the same way in fact if we look at that right now we may as well address the elephant let's in the room see, and, let's then, do it. and then talk to talk to hedge funds so according to spiva which is very well regarded in the professional sector uh, as as a comparison uh, facility and ratings facility um, around 80 it's actually over 80%, it's 80.8% of Australian equity general funds underperform the ASX 200 on a five-year time frame. So that's so, your fund manager investing in Australian yeah. shares underperforming just the basic benchmark, Correct. ASX 200. So if we, exactly right. So if you take the ASX 200, the top 200 companies here in Australia, um, that then would become the benchmark. And, and the allure, if you will, of investing in a managed fund is the fund manager's expertise. They'll go back through and say over the last 20, 30, 40 years, this particular fund has developed an expertise in renewable energy, for argument's sake, quite topical. Um, But nearly, well, four-fifths, 80% of the fund managers that are managing money can't get to the benchmark. So they may talk about a level of expertise, but picking stocks is actually very, very challenging. And having been a fund manager, I can attest to that. It is not an easy business to be in. It's very lucrative, but it is not an easy business to be in to try and outperform that index over a period of time. And so, as I say, 80% of them fall short of that. And this is a general equity fund too. This is this nothing is too crazy, this is, right? This too is volatile. mean potatoes where most mum and dad investors spend their time. And that's why I think you know this podcast is particularly important because the easy option is I've got some money, I don't know what to do with it, I don't trust myself, which is a huge thing for most people, to manage this myself, I'm going to give it to a professional to do it for me, which is a very compelling case on the surface, until you dig deeper and actually have a look at that. And unless you happen to have the knack of picking the one in five fund managers that is gonna outperform the market over a five year period, you're already signing up to not doing as well with your money as you could be by taking a different approach. We'll talk about what that approach may be as we get towards the back end of this conversation. So you got a, a basically a one in five chance of outperforming the market using a fund manager based on those statistics from Spiva. It's really scary because yeah. they're supposed to be experts who know more than the average Joe Bag of Donuts, right? Correct. And if your financial planner is tied to a particular dealer group that only promotes a certain type of product and those products may not be performing that well, well, you've also then got that skew that you're in an underperforming dealer group. And that does happen. I won't name names, but there's some very obvious ones in the Australian market right now. Can I ask you a question, AB? For anyone out there listening saying, well, why do I really care if my fund manager underperforms the index? Let's Mm -hmm. say the benchmark returns 12% per annum and the fund manager returns 10%. That 2% might only be fairly minimal to an average retail investor. Should they really care about that 2%? Well, it depends on what you want to do with that money. Let's say it's going to fund your retirement. Are you planning on living 2% less long than you would if you had the money? It's a really good point. So you say, I'm going to live till 90. Okay, now I'm going to have to car it when I'm 86 because I'll run out of money. Yeah, And that's the reality of it. If you look at it over the long term, underperformance is a, a very sleeping, creeping way of denigrating long-term wealth. And, and it's something that we encourage actively through, for example, a mon- mon- monthly money date where you actually look and see how your money is performing. And then every three to six months, look at reallocating the portfolio that you have of investments. And this may sound highbrow. And if, if, if you're a mum and dad investor and you're new to this whole thing, don't think this kind of conversation is just for the big end of town. The reason they're the big end of town is because they've done these things on the way through to ensure that the money they've worked so hard with Uh, work so hard for is being managed in a way that's optimizing 
their potential return. And as I say, with four out of five fund managers underperforming that benchmark, your odds of success are pretty low before you start. So whilst it's passive and it's easy and there's nothing further to do than keeping on that unit price every now and then, there is a trade-off to that, and that is that you're probably going to underperform the market. Another question for you then, AB, and a more timely one at that, would be the importance of those exact statements that you've just made in times of higher inflation, like what we're at right now. What kind of impact does that have on your future buying power if you're actually underperforming just the basic benchmark right now? I think when it comes to your asset allocation, uh, and I guess part of the reason you know people go to a financial planner or a financial advisor is to, to be coached and, 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 and managed through this process. So typically every six months or at least every year, um, your financial planner will be going back to you saying, look, the world has shifted and we're recommending that you adjust your portfolio to take into account that inflation is high and therefore you should be buying the following assets. And, and, and to give you an example of that, you know, I'm talking to firsthand from client feedback. So this is not our, I guess, slightly jaded and slightly biased opinion of what's going on, but simply a relay of opinion from you know, many of our thousands and thousands of clients that are out there in the investing world. You know, financial advisor last year, our oh, equity markets look a bit choppy, so we're going to move into bonds. Yet moving into bonds when inflation is increasing and interest rates going up is a surefire way for bond prices to actually fall in value. And because that revision of advice and ROA, as it's called, is done you know, typically every six to 12 months, it's a very, very slow turning vehicle. And you imagine the difference between driving a jet ski and an oil tanker. You know, a jet ski is incredibly nimble and you can dart and dive here and there, whereas an oil tanker takes an awful long time to turn around. In the same vein, if you've got a, a, a six or 12 month look at your portfolio, that's a very, very slow turn and it's unlikely that you're gonna end up on point because it's just too hard to maneuver and it's too tardy in the way that it's being done. Uh, and so that's that's a real risk for people when they become quite hands-off. So for in, in, in the case of inflation, as you've said, you've got to have a portfolio that's geared up to uh, to be in assets that are inflation-proof, uh, that, that typically grow in value through that period of time, not fall. Yet, you know, some of the advice that people have been given is to the contrary. But yeah, that's a separate conversation about the veracity, if you will, of, of advice that's provided to you. And again, is partly why it's driven us to be in the position where we want to educate our clients so that they don't need to be an economist, but they do need to understand that there are some major signposts that come up from time to time that do prompt you to need to change the strategy that you're in there and then not in six or 12 months time if you wanna head yourself out and protect yourself from that risk. So it can be a much slower moving vehicle. Again, for the masses that wanna be very passive and don't really care too much or don't, maybe don't care is the wrong term because it's their money, it's your money. Ultimately, you're going to want to care about it because you've had to work pretty damned hard to earn it in the first place. But people that have elected to be a little more hands-off and, 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 and away from the control over their money, um, oh, don't worry, I've got someone looking out for it, but that doesn't, always work as well as it could or should for the simple reason it's their money. They're never going to treat it in the same way that you would treat your own. So to summarize the reality of a managed fund, effectively you're paying more to do worse with your fund, using the pure hard stats. Look, I didn't say that, but it'd be very hard to disagree with what you've just said. That's the fear you've been sitting here listening to what I've had to say. And yeah, there's a, there's a fee that you're paying for someone to 80% of the time underperform the market. So for investors out there listening to that, and, and I'm going to assume that likely there's some pretty confronting comments in their AB that they've heard today. There are very similar options to manage funds 
albeit to be done in a much more cost-effective yeah. way and likely better in the ETF space, which is, I know, your, your baby over the last couple of years. Mm. Talk to us about what that could look like. Look, I, I think that's a, that's a great sort of lead into it because the thing is, Mitch, things change over time. When we talked about yeah, managed funds have been you know, the store for most people that want a passive investment for the last as long as we can remember. But times are a-changing and, and there are products that are developed in the marketplace all the time that offer the benefits of what a managed fund is, but without some of the cons. Uh, and I think you know exchange traded funds or ETFs are one of those vehicles that are increasingly um, front and center. They've been one of the fastest growing asset classes over recent years, um, and, and and there's good reason for that. So if you think about the the cons, performance and cost are probably two of the biggest ones. The third one is a lack of control. That's a subjective one because some people just don't trust themselves to have control. That's why upskilling, learning some of the material that we provide is, is important. So your alternatives to a managed fund and where an ETF kicks in, let's say, and, and, and here's an aside, by the way, sorry to digress, 80% or 80.8% in Australia of fund managers underperform the market. And what's really interesting is that statistic is almost identical in the US. That's when scary. At, when you look at mutual funds managers in the US, it's, it, it's very different. And you asked earlier about where hedge funds come in and what the difference is between a managed fund and a hedge fund. Typically, a managed fund just charges an annual fee. A hedge fund will charge an annual fee, but also a percentage of the profit that they make. So a typical structure, and this was in fact one of the structures in the hedge fund I ran, um, you, you get paid your annual management fee and then you take 20% of net new profit that you generate. So you know, if you've made a, a, a 15% uh, return for investors over the course of the year, then you take 3% of that as your performance bonus, noting that that's now what's called a high watermark. So you don't ever get paid a performance fee if the unit price drops below that. It's only if the price improves in terms of the unit price. When you think about that as a premise, it actually makes an awful lot of sense because you're now incentivized to absolutely optimize performance because you're going to participate in it. In other words, now that portfolio you look after is as good as it being your own money. So I'm not suggesting that a typical fund manager doesn't have a duty of care and a fiduciary duty to look after the money. But if you're participating in the upside, I think human nature would suggest that you're probably going to approach it in a marginally different way. Well, effectively, any profit is is your money, right? If you've got that kind of arrangement. Yeah, and, and, and it's been tremendously successful. And those fee structures have shifted a little bit as the hedge fund industry has matured. So that that's a distinction, I guess, between and hedge funds. Similarly, yeah, hedge funds usually work on an absolute return basis rather than their performance versus the index. So if they go long the market or short the market, and all they're looking to do is generate alpha or absolute profit for the client irrespective of market direction. So there's a slightly different set of benchmarks in there. So what can investors do? And as I say, exchange traded funds are very powerful in that regard. And you know, if you bought one exchange traded fund and let's take SPY, which is the S&P 500 on the US, so the big 500 companies over in the US, um, by buying that, you're going to track exactly what the S&P 500 is doing. Whether it goes up or down, you're going to track it. Now, the advantage to doing that is you've got one investment, that's totally diversified, where the fee structure is extremely competitive. Next to nothing, it, basically. It's negligible. You can buy and sell anytime you want through your broking account. You can use it as a regular savings plan by adding more money into it. And unlike a managed fund where you get the unit price where there's often a buy and sell or bid and offer spread, it's pretty tight. Spy is one cent. So, you know, it's very, very competitive to be able to transact on. Um, and you've got the ability where you are guaranteed, based on the statistics we've just spoken to, of outperforming 80% of the market. 
because 80% of the market can't even perform in line with the index. Well, you're going to track exactly in line with the index. So you're going to be largely financially better off by doing that. One term you've used a couple of times there, AB, that I'd like to flesh out is the word tracking. Mm. And that becomes really important when you're looking at the distinguishing factors between a managed fund and an ETF. Mm. Talk to us about exactly what you mean by tracking. Okay, so tracking and, and, and more specifically tracking error. So if you've got a an exchange traded fund that purports to be able to follow the ASX 200, for example, I've got a mate of mine that runs one. Um, their goal is to, within a couple of basis points, you know, 0.01%, to perform exactly in line with the market. And the wider that tracking error, the less it's performing in line with the market, the less well-rated that that fund is in terms of its ability to track. And it's not gonna be one that you'll probably invest in if you're investing to, to better track the market. So that's what tracking is all about. You want something that's basically a me and my shadow that literally is following the market uh, to the nth degree. And again, if you perform exactly in line with the market, you've outperformed 80.8% of fund managers over five years. Not bad, one transaction. You don't have to think about it. You click a button, you buy, and it's done. And you've then got control. You've got probably better performance. You've also got a lower cost base. Uh, and you can constantly add to that as you're building your wealth through a regular savings plan, which are all things that align with our view of wealth creation over time uh, versus I'll sit down with the financial planner at the end of the year and, and, and maybe adjust tack a little bit. And it's a very passive and arguably archaic approach to the world of investing. And again, that's what drives us to want to educate people so that they can make informed decisions. And, and I'm sure we'll cover exchange traded funds in a lot of detail under a, under a separate podcast. But you know, that ability to either have an index tracker or if you've got a particular sector that you want to invest in. So it could be lithium, for example. Uh, and if you want to invest in an exchange trader fund that just focuses on lithium because that happens to be your view, well, you can do that. Or the banking sector or pharmaceuticals or, uh, yeah. And anyway, we'll get in and talk about them, I think, under well, separate you, cover. You can even get exposure outside the equity market using the ETF in the equity market, you know, bond ETFs yep. or property ETFs, that kind of thing, right? Exactly right. And, 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 and I guess, you know, sort of, Going back to that notion of a balanced fund, the really interesting thing, and I've seen this, I've lived in a few different countries around the world now, and when, when you sit down with a financial planner or a financial advisor in any country, the allocation is always towards domestic equities because it's seen as being less risky because it's your local market. So when I was living in the UK, UK equities. The time I spent in the US, it would be US equities. Here in Australia, it's going to be Australian equities. So you have that sort of, say, for argument's sake, 40% of the portfolio in domestic equities because it's safe, because it's local. And the, the argument is there's no exchange rate risk. And then maybe you might have 10 or 15% exposure to the global equity market and then some in bonds. When you actually sit and think about that advice, it's insane. And I know that's a, a big statement to make and may sound a little irrational, but Australia represents about 1.8% of the global economy. Tiny. So why would you have 40% of your investments in something that's 1.8% of the global economy? Now, by contrast, if you look at the US, which is over 50% of the US economy, or the global economy, should I say, and yet that's part of your overseas asset allocation of maybe 10 or 15% in total. So you've got this tiny amount invested in the biggest market in the world and this huge overweight position on the local market because it's a safer way of investing. And, and I kind of question that in terms of, sure, there might be exchange rate risk, which by the way, you can hedge out, but there might be some exchange rate risk in, in, versus investing overseas. 
But I think the potential for better returns and diversification away from a very, very small market in the case of Australia, more than outweighs the, the risk return when you sit and weigh it up. So that's like a balance fund if you were to look at that. Interesting. There's a lot to consider here when you actually out, when you lay it out like this, AB, a lot of, uh, say, new retail investors might be feeling a little overwhelmed with this, which is why we're such advocates for financial literacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we teach clients to do this stuff each and every day, right? Yeah. I, I guess the takeaway from that, Mitch, and it, it's true, and uh, I think because we're so close to the coalface, it's easy to be you know, a little bit blinkered that this is just common knowledge, and it probably isn't. And if you are brand new to investing, uh, and firstly, thanks for, for, for tuning into the show, but secondly, don't be intimidated by this stuff. It's actually a process and it's actually fairly straightforward to learn and understand. And specifically, spend some time learning a little bit more. You don't have to become Warren Buffett or George Soros, but understanding a little bit more about how global markets operate and what products are available versus the game plan that we inherit from our parents, for example, yeah, and I, 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 you know, we've got the person coming from you know, XYZ who's been our, our financial planner for the last 30 years, still flogging the same product over the last 30 years. There's not a lot of innovation. It's, it's possibly a dying, dying, dying model. But because mum and dad did that and it worked out okay for them, that's the process that you're going to take on as well. And I'd urge people to challenge that way of thinking and step back and go, okay, what can I learn myself, not to become an expert in this, because you shouldn't, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room, but be smart enough to know what questions to ask in order that my money can be put to work as hard as I've had to work for it. And sitting down with your advisor, whomever that might be, and discussing the relative performance of their fund versus the market, and understanding that every time you underperform by the, the market by 1% or 2%, the knock-on effect of that in 10 or 15 years' time, if you're coming through to retirement, is absolutely enormous for a lot of people. You know, it's an exponentially uh, significant outcome. Asking why that outperformance is there and maybe in looking at either an index tracking fund or setting up a broking account, we can do that in a heartbeat. You know, it takes about five to 10 minutes to get that set up. Putting your money in that account and actually for yourself, buying directly an exchange-traded fund where you've got total control You've got something that's going to outperform 80% of managed funds that you can regularly add savings to rather than leave your money sitting in the bank for the year to talk to the financial planner to then say, okay, I've got another 10, 15, 20 grand saved up. Can I put that in? Oh, yeah, we'll put it into an Australian equity fund because it's our local market and it's safer than investing offshore. And instead, you could just be whacking that money across uh, each month as the money comes in for a very, 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 very low fee, transaction fee, into something that's going to be working and outperforming that fund on any given Sunday. You know, it's it, it's a no-brainer when you really think about it like that. But di- dissecting the steps to start and more importantly, building the trust in yourself to want to do that and and the getting past the horror story, this is going to take me ages, I'm going to have to spend so much time doing this, it's going to take over my life. None of those things are true, they're just stories that you can tell yourself. You know, we're a few minutes a week, you can actually take over this and save yourself an absolute fortune in fees. And as I say, likely get better performance out of it is what drives us in this journey to have conversations just like this today, where you can open a door of opportunity to people and say, look, it's great that you're saving. And I love it when I hear people saving. It's even better that you're investing those savings. I love it when I hear that. And with just a couple of turns of the knob and a dial here or there, you can make a significant difference in what your outcome is going to be for you and your family in five or 10 or 15 years time by not being one of the 80% that underperform, but actually 
performing in line with the market, which is good for you. And then adding over that the fees that you're going to save yourself and, and perhaps most importantly, the self-fulfillment and the recognition that you can give yourself from a personal growth perspective to say, I took care of business for me and my family. I learned a little bit about what I could be doing. And even if I do continue to invest in managed funds, I'm going to be much more selective in what I invest in by asking the right questions of my advisor to make sure that my money is being optimized, not risked, not in silly stuff, but is being more allocated in a way that's optimized for me and my family, as opposed to perhaps what it might be for the financial planner. That to me is an outright win for anyone that takes that advice on board. And you know, personally speaking, that juices me more than anything when I see people make that breakthrough, that ability to learn to trust yourself, not to be the fund manager, but to make smarter decisions with your money. Don't have to be the smartest person in the room, surround yourself with smart people, but ask the right questions. How's this going compared to the market? Okay, it's underperforming. What can I do to perform at least in line with the market? Get something that's an index tracker. Do you want to get an index tracking fund where you've got to pay a management fee? Probably not. Why don't you get an exchange traded fund that will be much cheaper for you that you can control, that you can add regular savings to? And perhaps most importantly, you're not investing 40, 50, 60% of your money into a very, very small slab of the global economy because we are in a global world now. And an overallocation domestically is actually more risky in my mind. And there'll be people that challenge that view versus having exposure to the biggest economies in the world. That makes sense to me. Well said, AB. Very compelling case there. and really love that breakdown. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Anytime, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating. And if you know someone that's looking at markets or looking to invest, make sure you share this podcast with them. It helps more people get the information. 